This week, we journey to Portugal to spend two days with Brazilian big wave surfer Maya Gabera. She risks her life with every attempt to rise to the top of her sport where she now reigns. This is actually our first overseas taping since COVID began. We had to get government approval to get into Portugal because of the pandemic. We were about an hour and a half outside of Lisbon in a small town called Nazaré, and we were some of the few non-locals there. Gabera was authentic and open, covering all aspects of her life. How do you gather all this information? You're gnarly. Including the 2013 accident that nearly took her life. The only sensation I still had was hearing, because that's the last one you lose before dying. And fighting to receive the world record recognition she deserved. This can only be taken out of the website when I have my world record in my hand. All while dealing with gender discrimination in the sport. How often were you discouraged from pursuing your dreams? Oh yeah, all the time. <laughs> and throughout our chat, you'll hear a second male voice, Gabera's surfing partner, Sebastian Stoitner. He's also an elite big wave surfer with goals to surf the tallest waves in the history of the sport. What limits us the most is equipment. Um, it's the lack of technology in our sport. But first, we start with Gabera's childhood. She details a severe struggle with asthma, how she was the worst surfer in her beginner's class, and why her father kidnapped an American ambassador. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. I want to take you back to when you were a kid. Uh, you had pretty severe asthma, I think, from 5 to 10 years old. How, how bad did it get? Yeah, it was pretty bad. It was, um, you know, my first experiences with going to the hospital, struggling um, and feeling like I was a fragile child. I really grew up with that sensation, you know, of like needing um, protection, needing my mom, um, just because I, you know, always had to have my medicine on me, always had to be careful. My... My um, colds were always aggravated into like an asthma episode. So it was never just like, I'm gonna get sick for a few days and sneeze a little bit and that's gonna be it. It always went into my lungs. And so that always made it a little bit more complicated. How often would you have to go to the hospital? Um, really stay in the hospital? I don't remember, maybe like twice a year. And I understand you would have to miss out on things that your older sister would do. Yeah, I had less freedom, you know, I, it was harder to just send me to like camps and like to go stay with children. Like my sister used to travel a lot into like um, summer camp and stuff like that. And I just, you know, because of my asthma, I, I didn't really have that freedom for a while. So your dad gave you your first surfboard, I believe. How true is it that it took you a month before you could stand up on yeah, it? Yeah, it's very true. I was terrible at uh, surfing. Um, I had the tendency of popping up with my knee, which I still do to this day. And in surf school, I was like always kind of the worst, <laughs> but I instantly fell in love with the sport. And I think the fact that it was so hard for me made it more engaging and more challenging. So that was part of the fun for me as well. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, I just kept trying. I mean, who wants to just pick up something and have it so easy that it's it's there already you know you gotta work towards something how true is it that you didn't like sand for the yeah. longest time 
we were never like a, a family that really went to the beach a lot, right? My dad is an intellectual, uh, at the time politician, my mom's into fashion design. So I was not um, familiar with sand. And, and then when I fell in love with surfing, you know, my passion was the water. <laughs> and so like this connection with just hanging out on the beach was never something that clicked for me. And, and you didn't swim for a long period of yeah. time too, right? Yeah, I started swimming later. Um, I swam very little when doctors told me that swimming was good for my asthma, but I didn't really engage in the sport and I quit. And then I started dancing a lot as, as a child to support my asthma and because I really loved it. And then after I started surfing and I didn't have much of a, a water skill, I needed to be able to swim. Then that's when I started looking into learning um, how to swim from point A to point B. Your dad was kind of a Brazilian legend. Uh, how would you best explain his achievements to an American audience? Oh my God. <laughs> he is, you know, one of the founders of the Green Party. It was somebody that um, very early on started discussing environmental issues and the impact and the climate change in an era that we wouldn't hear about it in Brazil. And he always fought for the minority. He was always into like more of uh, the hard issues. So, and then he transitioned into going back uh, to being a journalist, which he was always before and is now. And yeah, that's, that's kind of his story. He was uh, at one point though, shot and yeah. exiled for nine years. Uh, tell about that period. That was a time in our country that, you know, we went through dictatorship and my dad entered a military group to fight for their freedom. He was, you know, a journalist and the journalists were getting arrested and tortured and, and were dying um, because of, they didn't have the freedom of speech. And so my dad fought um, and ended up kidnapping the American ambassador. And with that, he ended up being shot, being caught, um, being exiled to Europe and, and different countries for over 10 years. I was born after. And he um, is a brave man. Basically, they kidnapped the ambassador as a way to um, publish a letter of freedom of speech and to get 20 of their friends out of the torture um, and the jail and out of the military hands. So, yeah, he condemns the, <laughs> the act a little bit because it was violent. It had violence involved, but that was, you know, the time we lived in. So, and then funny enough, I went to them to America and I lived there for 10 years and he couldn't visit you. He could not visit me. And that was very hard. I'm so fortunate that then my career transitioned to Portugal because it was definitely a question mark. Like I love the US, I work here, I might live here. But then what, my dad's never gonna see my life. He's never gonna like see what I created for myself. And so there was always that kind of emptiness that um, I wasn't happy with. And he supported marijuana legalization, yeah. uh, gay marriage. Uh, yeah. I understand that created challenges for you in school. Yeah, I was teased, you know. I mean, there was always the concept that my parents smoked and, you know, so there were some friends that 
parents wouldn't want them to come to our house because they thought it was like always marijuana in our house, which was not the case. Yeah. But a lot of the things like gay marriage, like you said, yeah, a lot of the minority issues that he thought it was important that somebody looked for them and like established laws that would include them in society in a sense. And you switched schools in part because people yeah. were giving you a hard time, right? Yeah, well, I didn't, I didn't fit in, I think. I was very attached to my dad and... You know, I was always very sensible to criticism, <laughs> which, you know, my whole life, it's been like that. And yeah, kids at 10 years old, they're just, they're mean. <laughs> right. So your mom, a uh, fashion designer, um, what do you think you learned from her? I don't know. I'm constantly learning from my mom. She's constantly reinventing herself nowadays, working with sustainability and fashion and the fashion industry as a whole. And just always, always evolving. How would you like best explain the role that she plays in your life? My mom is my best friend, probably. Uh, it's the, by far the person I speak the most, um, probably every day. She helps me with all my company financial stuff in Brazil. She does kind of like a bridge between me and my agencies. And now we work together on, on a new project. And that will be launched hopefully in a year or so. It's a company that I can't talk much about. But yeah, we're always connected, you know. We've, we've, well, we disconnected at some point back in the day. And then once we reconnected and we reestablished our relationship, then yes, we've been together since. So your parents divorced when I think you're 11 or 12 years old. Yeah. Um, how expected was it and how did it affect you? Oh, it affected me a lot. We were brought into the living room. We were living in the Panama at that time. And they told us, and I was devastated. I was really devastated. They told us, meaning you and your older sister? Me and my older sister, exactly. And they broke the news. And yeah, it was, it was very hard because my dad works a lot. And the fact that he would live somewhere else would just mean that um, the relationship would get even more distant. And your mom, at some point thereafter, I think kicks you out of the house. Mm -hmm. uh, what happens? Funny enough, she kicked me out of her house when I was 13. Is that funny but, enough? Yeah, no, because funny enough is that she said it, but she didn't mean it. Because she didn't say move out. She said, if you don't stop doing what you're doing, you got to move out of my house. But because I was so, and I still am strong-minded, I said, what? You want me out? I'm out of here. And that night I moved out. And she just was baffled. And I said, I'm moving out of your house because I'm doing whatever the hell I want to do. And that was me, you know, I was terrible. We didn't have a good relationship then for the next six to seven years. What led to her telling you, if you don't get your act together, you're out of here? <laughs> I used to lie a lot about going to school, but not going to school, about uh, sleeping over somebody's house, but, you know, going out partying somewhere else. And she just felt like she was losing control. And I, I agree with her, it must have been terrifying to lose control of a 13-year-old girl in Rio. I mean, you don't want to lose control, you know, and she was certainly losing that control. Dr and drugs and alcohol? Um, maybe I dr drank a little bit back then. Yeah, not drugs. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, pubs, you know, like fake ideas and 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 stuff like that. But always, always going around with older people. You know, I was 13. My friends would be 17, 18. And it's reason for a parent to be. Yeah, of course. Right? She had all the reasons to be worried because and and first and foremost you know i wasn't telling her the truth so she has lost control over my education and so you went to your dad's and he would be gone from tuesdays yeah. through fridays yeah. every week you'd be on your own yeah. what would you do i'd serve yeah it, so the lucky thing for me was that right when i moved to my dad i was soon introduced to surfing and that path I was leading with my mom, kind of like still lost and just uh, wanting to party and this and this. All of a sudden I became completely um, immersed in learning how to surf. And yeah, most of the problems went away. So at 15, you decided you're moving to Australia. Yes. Uh, how did you break <laughs> that to your parents and how did they Oh, I'm smart. Respond? I'm very strategic. I found an exchange in, an exchange student program um, in the place I wanted to go surf, in the school I wanted to go to, and I sold the idea to my mom and dad that this was great, that I was going to learn English, you know, I was already fluent in German. My dad speaks seven languages, so it was like, oh, you're going to learn fluent English? Okay, that's important. Where do you want to go? Well, <laughs> I want to go to this little city, you know, that has surfing in their curriculum, so I can surf as well. Your mom says she has kind of a family of intellectuals, and you come back from Australia, <laughs> and you decide you don't want to oh go goodness. to school uh -huh. anymore. Uh -huh. uh, what do they say? <laughs> that was a funny period. Um, yeah, yeah, I did, I did not want to engage in school activities anymore. Um, and I did not want to use shoes. <laughs> I did not want a bunch of things. And um, my mom was kept a little bit outside of my life at that time. Um, she was just kind of losing it and really upset of uh, the route I was taking. But with my dad, I was just kind of negotiating. Like, dad, you know, I think morning, it's not the thing for me anymore. Let's try school in the afternoon. Because, you know, morning time is the best time for surfing Rio. I think that has to be kept alone. And then I was like, mm, Dad, you know, like afternoon, like I also need to train in the afternoon. I think I should study at night. And then I went to night. And then, Dad, you know, at night I'm so tired from surfing all day. Like there's no way I can keep up with this. Can I just do tests and like study at home and go just to get approved? And so, yeah, it just became... Um, <laughs> negotiation with my dad and he was fine with all of it he wasn't happy with it he was like look you're gonna have no education like you're gonna be screwed at some yeah. point but you know you do whatever you want to do and he kind of just stepped back and and let the the yeah let it happen what role would you say the movie blue crush played in your <laughs> life big role i remember exactly i used to be addicted to it me and my dad I remember watching it in his room because he had TV and being obsessed with it and obsessed with Pipeline and obsessed with the idea of girls that were like surfing big waves and brave and um, independent. And, and then it ended up kind of being my life. 
I was surfing pipe and Waimea and I was waitering tables and working in a restaurant. And I, I think you waitressed for three or four years after you moved to uh, Hawaii and you did that when you're 17 yeah. years old. Uh, what do the parents say at that point? Yeah, well, I, no, at that point is like, oh my God, you know, our kid's gonna go to Hawaii. How are we gonna like assess this? My mom did pretty good. She became friends with this lady that was renting me a room and it was like a hostel for Brazilians. So she would always try and connect with locals that she knew through friends of friends. My mom knows everyone. And they would always tell her that I was okay. You know, like you're a girl, like all she does is surf. <laughs> you know, like she goes to bed at seven and then wakes up at four. So I like, it's not. And that's when she started being a little bit more accepting of what was going on. And, and so the partying had stopped at oh, that point yeah. in your no, end. No, I, I was, as soon as I started surfing, maybe like a year in, I was already completely focused on, on sports. Which is interesting if you came in with a partying tendency into a culture where hard partying's a, a big part of it, you didn't allow yourself to But I was too into, young. Yes. You know, I, I feel like I was, I was very young, 17, by myself in Hawaii. Like, I, I just, I, I kept with older people that had passed already that phase, you know, and were like working and trying to um, humble people in that hostel I stayed. So, yeah, I was lucky in that sense. And maybe also lucky that I did get a taste when young. I wasn't curious about it. You know, I just, I didn't care for it. Like, yeah. I knew what I wanted. Around the time you were in Hawaii was when your parents kind of cut you off financially. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. they weren't going to help. Well, I have a hard time knowing exactly when my dad cut me off. Like, my mom never supported me financially. My dad did. Uh -huh. When I left, I remember we had a deal of a sum around 800 a month, which... It's good, you know, but I couldn't buy no surfboards. I couldn't buy wetsuit. Like, there was no extra in there. That was, like, for the hostel and some food. Any extra, I had to work and save. A year and a half later, I think my dad had enough. And he was like, look, are you coming back or are you not? And I was like, no, I'm not. And he was like, okay, so then you, you're going to figure yourself out. It, it wasn't meant to be a fight or or a way to bring me back to Brazil. It was more like, you're deciding, you're, are you an adult? Are you gonna do this? Can you afford? Yes, I'm gonna stay, I'm gonna stay humble, I'm gonna keep working and I'm gonna try it. Tell about being in Bali with no money and mm. your credit card being denied. How do you know? <laughs> I've, I've had a few times in Indonesia where I was just completely um, <laughs> terrified. And at some point, I couldn't get the money out or something, and so I had no cash, I had no credit card, I had nothing, and I had, like, enough money to pay my food bill and pay the room. But, yeah, in Indonesia, I was out of money a few times, and, and mostly because I knew that if I was in the U.S. or if I was somewhere first-world country, if I said, look, Dad, I need money, like, just send me, and, like, it will be here tomorrow. But the thing with Indonesia was that Sometimes it just didn't work. And when I got caught up on those problems, it was, it was nerve-wracking. What was the most creative way you were ever able to save money to get something special for yourself or somebody else? 
So at some point I had to make enough money to buy myself a ticket to go to Indonesia for the first time. And I got myself a job on a 7-Eleven from 10 p.m. to 8 in the morning for two weeks. And I would get the bus, ride one hour to get to this job and be like literally on a 7-Eleven by myself like this. For like 10 hours because I was never awake at that time. Yeah. And then in the end, the guy never paid me. How did you end up getting the money? I said, dead. I worked for two weeks. <laughs> I'm supposed to get paid. And I'm pretty sure he covered me and I was able to get my ticket. And I landed in Indonesia on April 10th when I turned 18. You've had at points a challenge relationship with uh, sponsors because you'll fight for the money you deserve. And, you know, you are clear about what you will and won't do. Still truth to that to th this day or not so much? Yeah. Yeah, I never, ha I never had like easy, easy relationship with brands that were heavily involved in surfing, I would say. Um, maybe because they came with a pre-constructed idea of what a big wave surfer should look like or what a woman surfer should look like. And I don't think at the time I fit the mold. I was different. Sometimes I felt like misunderstood and I had to really fight for what I believed of what direction I wanted to go. And then I do think that it also waits that um, I am, I have a bit of a controversy career in the surf world. Why do you think controversial? Well, <laughs> I don't know if I should filter myself. Um, well, some people just think I don't surf well. And, you know, uh, there's been a lot of criticisms over, you know, my technique, uh, my braveness, my skill. I don't know. There's been a lot of criticism that um, comes from important people in my industry that kind of sets the tone and yeah. And before I ask you about that specifically, just some context, if you don't mind, explain the kind of history of there really not being a place for women in big wave surfing. Yeah. Well, when I started big wave surfing, there was not one woman in the world at the time that would get paid to perform in the big wave scene. And it's not as if they didn't want to be paid to perform or have that as a primary job, right? The yeah, I think at the time, nobody thought maybe it was possible, you know? It was like this distant, this distant niche in the sport that was still completely male dominated. And so when I went in, I was very young for the sport. I was 17, 18 when I went to Hawaii and I started, you know, feeling out that territory. And, and there were only men and there were only opportunities for men. And then a year later, there was the first opportunity in professional big wave surfing for women, which was in the big wave awards, something called the overall performance for a woman in big waves. They had that for the men. They had multiple different categories for the men. But then at that time, they established this one category for women. And I thought, well, there's one thing I can win. <laughs> Let's win that a few times. And that's when I started and that's when I got sponsored. And that's how I 
saw a possibility to become a professional. What impact do you think the fact that she is a woman has on how she's treated by folks in the sport? Well, I think it has, now it has a lot of pros. Yeah. Because she proved it, she did it, she established the world records and um, she's proven herself in a competition as the only woman against man and has done really well. Now it's just respect. But I think on the way getting there, there's a lot of doubt. When you're an amateur, they don't see you as a threat. <laughs> when you turn professional, even if you are a while far from their performance, you start becoming a threat because you start getting uh, media space, sponsorship space, and that's money that is being relocated, right? So um, at some point you can ask yourself, would that be to the man if a woman wasn't here? Yeah. And probably. How often were you discouraged from pursuing your dreams? Oh yeah, all the time. <laughs> I mean, I was discouraged by the environment all the time. A sport is really, it's a lot of jealousy. Uh, only a few people that really make it. I don't think people approach her bluntly, but people will talk a lot of shit behind her back. Whatever you do, if, you, if it's something positive for yourself, people will hate on it. I had one encounter that was quite traumatic. Um, I had just gotten my first jet ski in Hawaii. I was starting to partner up with Carlos for the first season. Who was your first tow partner? My first tow yeah. partner, Carlos Bulli. And I got this first jet ski, Red Bull gave it to me. And I was, you know, learning how to drive because Carlos always established that boundary. Like, I'm not going to drive you only. Mm -hmm. You're going to drive me too. Right. Like, this is a team. And having a jet and ski for the first time is a really big deal. It's a really big deal. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's a really big deal. And to be a driver amongst a lot of men drivers, it's a big deal, you know, to be in a lineup and to like be the, take ownership of that equipment yeah. and to handle it and to have a, an athlete's life in your hands, a big deal. And so I was studying that route and um, one day I, uh, Carlos lost the ski and this photo kind of went everywhere. It was this Red Bull ski. Uh, flying over my head and everywhere people thought it was me, of course. And then I got stopped by this legend in the sport um, in front of the post office. Who, and he, who was it? I'm not supposed to say. Okay. And one of the founders of the sport. Okay. There's only three. So. <laughs> okay, wait, then who are the three? <laughs> well, <laughs> Google it. <laughs> so one of the founders, he stopped me in front of the post office and I'm like, this little Brazilian girl, I'm like, oh, you know, this guy's talking to me. And, and he's like, hi, are you Maya? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, ah, oh, I saw what, what you did. Like, you're a shame to the sport. And so <laughs> I felt so, like, it was like he punched me in the stomach and I didn't even know what to say. I just ran. I never made it to the post office. Went home and I was like, kind of like frozen, you know. I was, I was petrified. Like every time people heavily criticized me and, and sometimes they have some right to do it, but the way they put it out there, 
I just, I'll never understand because I'll try to think a lot of times before I approach somebody if I feel like I'm going to harm them. And there's no way you don't suspect that you're going to harm a girl if you walk and you say something like that, you right. know? Like, yes, you, like, what do you want from me? Like, you want me to be better? You feel like I'm not equipped with, like, skills? Like, what is it? But if you throw it at me like that, you're just going to make me feel horrible. Right. And I just wouldn't do that to somebody. Laird Hamilton, who we've taped an episode mm -hmm. with before, came out, you know, after your 2013 near fatal accident. And he says, you don't have the skill to be in these conditions and says it on national television. Uh, what was your reaction when you heard that? I was just heartbroken, you know, because um, for multiple reasons. <laughs> First, you won you're like fragile, you know, you just almost died, you have a broken leg, you have pain everywhere, and you just feel beat up, you know. And to um, say something like that when you know that the person is fragile and like hurting, it's just, I don't know if it's the right timing. And then, you know, on top of that, of course, after I just kept thinking, you know, am I sad, am I mad, is he right? So it just makes you become very insecure and you start having to respond to like what he says, not only to the media, but to your friends, to your family. You know, this becomes like a discussion and he's a powerful voice. So it's, it's not an easy internet, oh, this chick does not surf. It's a little bit more complicated than that. Do you think there was, looking back on it now, any truth to uh, Laird's statements? Yeah, of course. I mean, he would never go and have such a strong opinion if he didn't believe there was some truth to it. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, we did a lot of mistakes on that first mission here. From Laird's standpoint at that time, he was right. They, they were not prepared. She didn't have the the setup and maybe the, the skills, because being able to understand the dangers of a, of a, of a spot before surfing it is a skill. Mm -hmm. The way it came out and being on the news, public, while she was in the, in the hospital bed, bad timing. But that, I, yeah, I, I, had the, I had a similar opinion, to be honest. What he said, I just have to deal with it, right? Because people are, uh, I mean, they're going to tell you like they think you suck at some point. You know, you can't expect that the world's going to look at you and be all, oh, you're so talented. So my problem with it was that he exposed me to a harsh criticism in a very delicate time. And he is an influencer. <laughs> You know, maybe not on social media, I don't know, <laughs> but he influences people. And when he says something like that, um, hopefully he knows that he's going to influence a lot of people to believe that I'm a nobody, that I'm unskillful. So that was tough. And he was uh, one of your childhood idols, as yeah. was Kelly Slater, who yeah. I also But you understand was... where I'm coming from? Like, I try to be sensible to their yeah. perspective, but there is also somebody hurting on the other side. You know, in the end of the day, if, if you continue surfing big waves after almost dying, after Laird saying you're not good for the sport and Kelly saying that you should stop and, 
you know, um, three spine surgeries. I mean, geez, you know, maybe I'm, I am supposed to serve big waves after all. And what did Kelly Slater say? Yeah, Kelly um, felt like he saw me almost dying in Tahiti on a huge, huge, huge day. Um, I disagree with his sense of me almost dying. I know what it is to almost die. Right. <laughs> I have almost drowned. Right. And I can, I can tell you I did not almost drown in yeah. Tahiti. But that was his sense of the situation. He was seeing it from above on a boat and maybe because of his fear or, or something, um, he thought that I had almost died and he, he, he felt very um, convicted that I was out of place shouldn't be there, didn't have the skill, shouldn't be in such a uh, violent, giant. He didn't surf that day. He thought it was too big for him or he wanted to save himself for competition. But it was probably the biggest day ever surfed in Te Ahopo. So with that said, maybe it was too big for me. I was very scared, I can tell you. And things did go wrong. So um, and with that said, then after he publicly said that he had you know, seeing me and he was very scared for me and this and that, and that was okay. Um, he sent me a direct message on Twitter and he said, look, and he didn't know me, I didn't know him. And all of a sudden you see a direct message from your childhood idol. Oh yeah, but I wasn't like, yeah, can't wait to see what it is. I was like, Fuck. <laughs> can't be any good. <laughs> and so I opened it up and it was Kelly and he said something on the lines of, you know, you are, uh, unprepared, you are endangering people around you when they have to go in and rescue in such scenarios. And, you know, I think if you continue to do what you're doing, you're going to die. So I highly suggest you to stop. I um, shared my point of view. You probably thought it was out of this world with this girl writing me a huge ass email. And, and life went on, you know. Big Wave Surfing is such a ego-driven sport and to have a little girl you know getting attention hurts the ego especially the biggest egos yeah. and then you know anything she does she's under under the microscope if you're gonna point a finger at her saying uh, she shouldn't surf because she's not prepared or because she's gonna die there's so many people that shouldn't surf and have a, a big chance of dying um, way before her any desire to ever reconnect with them like Kelly or Laird no I, I'm okay with it, you know, they had their points, they could have been more fortunate the way that they passed it on to me. But it was a different era too, it was a different time. I think women were treated differently back then and it was okay. It wasn't as um, discussed, you know, our role and, and uh, our place in society. I think a lot has changed and it was what it was, you know. It, it made me who I am, so I'm, I'm okay with it. You set what you thought was a world record, turned out to be, uh, but take me from that moment to the WSL awards mm -hmm. and then what you realized at that point. Yeah, so I rode my biggest wave until that point in... 18th of January 18, I truly felt like, okay, this is, this was the biggest wave of my life. I think this is a wave that could put me in the world record book. I mean, this is something worth fighting for. And the, the category was unisex at the time. And so January, 
I started talking to the WSL, look, this is, you know, a wave that should be considered, you know, let's talk again about doing the separation of the women and men and thought it was going somewhere, but they were um, not very specific about what they were doing behind the scene. And I went to the awards in April in California and they never show my wave. I was like, where's my wave? Like, what the fuck am I doing here? That was a, the moment where I realized, okay, they really, they really do not want to give her a world record or recognize what she has done. And then the bigger fight starts to talk and talk and talk with the WCL and understand what, what had happened. I think around three or four months later, I realized that it was going nowhere. And, and that's when I had the idea of doing something public and that would be the petition and I needed some some support exposure with that I also decided to retire because who is going to petition against their own sport league and not retire right I mean I'm going to go out and I'm going to say you know all those things about them and say how like incapable they are and how like you know they have prejudice or whatever and like what I'm going to go back and and like they might never like respond an email again, you know, right. I might be banned. Right. Like that was a real possibility in my mind, you know, I'm going to fight against them publicly. Like I might be banned. And I wanted to take that decision before <laughs> something bad happened. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I'm doing this. I'm creating the, the, the record. I'm going to fight. And then, you know, I'm out. I'm never going to touch this subject again. This is it. And so that's how I convinced myself to expose myself to saying what happened and fighting them and asking for the fan support that did sign more than 20,000. Um, it was more than 20,000 signatures on the petition. And, and even right when the petition went live, they contacted me. It was very quick. It was same day, same day. It's all happening. It's all happening. Please take it out of take it out of the website and I was like, look, I cannot. This can only be taken out of the website when I have my world record in my hand. So I, you know, left it going until it was official and, and I was given the, the world record and, and, so, and then we closed the petition. Because you felt like it, it, in terms of retirement, if you know, your achievements weren't going to get recognized, then what's the point? Yeah, of course. I mean, it was just too much of a heartbreak. <laughs> you know, I couldn't come back from that. Um, I couldn't come back from that fight. I couldn't come back from just, it wouldn't make sense to me anymore. That was my dream. And if that was never going to happen, then why would I, I mean, I don't know. I was confused. Toe surfing is for a lot of people in, in, in surfing, um, not surfing, you know? A lot of people say that's cheating. Um, they're not real surfers. Um, so there's, I think it's not just her being a woman, not just her, but so many factors that just play into what she resembles to them. It's like, yeah, it's a complicated situation. What was your reaction when you found out it happened? Oh my God, I cried with my dog. Jesse from the WSL, I think, texted me or called me and said, go, it's happening. I, I hung up and I was like, oh my God. And you know why? Because it was so stressful. Yeah. You know, like it was, it was not nice. 
You know, it was not nice to be begging for something that I thought I deserved. It made me sad, broke my heart, and, and you know, I lost hair over it. I had really? Like, yeah, I had blocks of hair fall out of my head. So I could tell, like, the stress was getting to me, you know. It was just not... I was still dealing with the anxiety disorder um, intensively, so, yeah, it was too much. The record-setting wave, you know, biggest wave surfed in 2020. You had said you've never been so close to such a powerful explosion. Uh, explain that. The noise that that wave made when it broke right behind me um, was the scariest thing I've ever heard. And I felt humbled. <laughs> I felt like for a second I didn't really want to be there. <laughs> not thinking about consequences, Maya. It's like one of those moments where you realize you risked it again and you just put yourself out there and, you know, you might get lucky or you might get not. And there's this, like, fine line. You want to be close to the fire, but you don't want to catch on fire. There was this sensation between me, Seb, and our team that, like, if I had really taken that wave on the head, the way I was, where I was, would have would have been very complicated. That wave looked humongous, like gigantic. Um, and I just, my vision was just seeing her disappear like a little dot. Looked really big, um, but it's really hard to judge it in, in that moment. But then when I saw the video, I was like, holy shit. What did you think of the public reaction to your second world record? <laughs> Um, the second world record had great, great, re great reaction. I feel like that there was a solid story there to tell at that point. You know, there was a near drowning. There was a first world record that was fought for. And then there was a second world record. And, you know, I feel like the story became complete. Were you surprised by kind of the global attention it got? Not really. I wasn't too surprised. And and the wave, I mean, the fact it was the biggest wave of the season, not not just from a woman's yeah, uh, side. Right. It was for everyone. Explain the new set of measuring criteria that was used for that and, and why. Yeah, that was another fight, too. <laughs> um, I have a fierce competitor who's French, Justine, and she had a, a, an amazing ride that same year. And we were both wanting the world record. And I was scared under their judging panel and their criterias that I was gonna get um, badly judged because the main sponsor had fired me. There was history there. There was a lot of history. And so I started getting worried, not about losing, but I started getting worried about how can I pressure them to create something that has a logic? And so that's when I started pushing inside the league that I wasn't going to accept a record either way, if it was mine or not, not to be explained and have a reasonable science or theory even behind the measurement tool. Because to date, that's, that's never been what they've done. They've no, never. They've at, just given it out. Looked at pictures to judge exactly, height. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah. 
And because I was selfishly scared that I was in a disadvantage politically, I, and I always wanted to have it more explained. I always wanted it to be more fair. I felt like it was a great thing to fight for. And that's why we had, we ended up with a 17 page report um, of the scientists that created the Kelly's wave um, explaining why I became the winner over Justine's wave. And it's not perfect science. You know, it is uh, measured post event, which is always a challenge. Um, you want to have those waves measured as the athlete is riding it, which hasn't happened in our sport yet. I think it's the future with some new technology. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as far as now, I felt like that was one more step in the right direction. Both your close friend, uh, Stephanie, who's doing a documentary on you, and uh, your tow partner, Sebastian, said, uh, if you were to surf the highest wave ever surfed by a man or a woman, because of politics in, in the sport, they don't believe it would ever be awarded to a woman, let alone you. I think anything is possible. I have um, surprised myself with uh, my political moves before. <laughs> I'm a great strategist. Um, no, I don't know. I don't think it's going to happen because I don't think that's um, something that's on my to-do list uh, as a priority. But I think if it did happen, I would surely fight for it. Explain why your proudest achievement is uh, being written about in a children's book. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, one of my proudest achievements is being written about in a children's book because I never um, realized how amazing is the connection um, that you can get from a genuine children wanting to talk to you and liking your story and being inspired by you. Um, and when that book came out, it was a huge success. I never expected. I did. I collaborated, but in a small form. And the book became huge, and I got a lot of feedback from it. And I just, I absolutely loved the idea that those very young girls were learning about surfing, learning about my story, hearing about Nazare, and inspired in some way. How much of big wave surfing is physical, and how much is mental? Mm, I'd say half-half. The physical aspect is you got to be strong to be on the rope, to handle the high speed that we go down those waves, um, to handle the beatdowns. And then the mental is you got to be willing to take a risk. You got to control your fear and and to me, it would be also the anxiety before, because otherwise what can happen is you use so much energy on your nerves the days prior that by the time the swell arrives, you're exhausted. And you've said before you're always scared on when surfing a big wave. Uh, still the case today? Yeah, yeah. I'm more scared these days than, really? than I think I used to be. I, f I mean... Not when I was like fully traumatized, of course not, but more scared than before my near drowning experience, I'd say yes. It just became real 
and that makes me question sometimes. I can switch off instead of getting to a point where I'm afraid and I freak out and I accelerate. I tend to do the opposite. I tend to go slower and slower and slower. And that is really good for oxygen saving and decision making and a bunch of different things that eventually um, hopefully save my life. How would you describe her personality to somebody that's never met her before? Um, I think she's very clear-minded uh, and I think anyone that you know leaves their home country at a young age and, and, uh, and pursues their dreams the way she did um, and also you know in the overcoming all the obstacles that that she had you have to be really focused explain how the adrenaline will start almost upon seeing the weather report yeah you start putting together the whole team and having to think about safety and dangers and all of that so you start realizing you know it's going to be serious and then just the excitement and the energy and the talks, you know, you start feeling like the town is getting very alive and very um, anxious about something. Laird Hamilton told me in our, our taping that big wave surfers almost get PTSD when coming down from the high of surfing a big wave and uh, that he gets depressed, you know, sometimes. And that's a thing among big wave surfers. Of course, imagine you peak in adrenaline, you give your all, you live to the fullest that day, you're exhausted. The next day you wake up and you're what, in your living room? I mean, it's a contrast of a very intense emotion and then life being very quiet again. And I think that is a challenge for for most of us you get a bit like what now <laughs> you know you get a little down i mean depressed not depressed um i don't personally um i have you know my side on anxiety <laughs> so i don't have the depression in me um thankfully so i deal with this other aspect in the mental health scheme and yeah, so I, I don't get depressed, but you, I do feel a hole. I do feel something got emptied out. Surfing, there's kind of this partying culture that surrounds a, a lot of it. Um, how does her commitment to the sport compare to, you think, a lot of other surfers? Well, I think the partying kind of very loose lifestyle that's that's kind of the 60s until the 90s or early maybe 2000s. Uh -huh. um, I think now both on the on the tour and in bigger surfing, most most of the top uh, um, surfers are athletes, like as much as basketball players or or anyone else. I think we got to a level where there are enough athlete surfers to where you can only keep up if you're also an athlete. Yeah, um, it's not just talent or not just uh, um, not just luck anymore. On the wave that uh, I guess almost took your life. Take me through like everything you remember from that day. Yeah, I've, we first drove, drove off the harbor there. The first thing I saw was this gigantic wave breaking like 500 meters 
or more outside from the cliff. And I had never seen that before. I was there, I was here just for a month. So that was new and we started all screaming and being like, oh my God, you know, this is different. It's going to be special. When we got out there, I was scared. That was the first time I had seen waves that big and been here with waves that big. And I teamed up with Carlos on the rope. And as we drove around over the waves, I told him, I was like, I'm quite insecure here. And he pressed me a little bit with encouragement, but also like, you know, gotta go, make up your mind, like. And so I felt that pressure and I said, no, I, I can, like, do you think I can do it? And he said, yes, of course you can do it. I don't think I'll choose that wave to ride nowadays. I think I'll choose a better wave, um, but we didn't have much experience. And so he put me on that wave, I ended up falling and break my ankle on that wave. Carlos had no experience on rescues. We didn't even have a backup rescue at the time, which we have nowadays, everyone has. Um, and Carlos had no communication. He had lost the radio and we kept going. So that was a massive mistake. And when I got taken by the second wave, um, I lost my life jacket underwater. And I got hit so violently at some point that I blacked out. And as I blacked out, I, I was already very out of air, already saying goodbye to my dearest and, and having all those difficult thoughts. So the scenario was like as bad as it gets. So that's a minute or so later, Carlos, I see him, I think he sees me, coming from the beach towards me out. And he approaches me and does a terrible approach, expecting that I'm going to be okay. I mean, I'm sure he learned now that after 10 minutes of not seeing a body in such conditions, they're not okay. Right. So he made the first approach and just threw me the sled, didn't even give me the hand or anything. And I was basically gone at that time. Yeah. I couldn't see, I didn't have vision anymore. Right. I was very limited. The only sensation I still had was hearing because that's the last one you lose before dying. So he approaches again and he screams, Maya grabs the, grab the rope. And I automatically already unconscious, grab the rope and I'm close enough to the shore that he can jump on my body. And, and we were lucky that he was able to swim me in from close. What's your first memory from waking back up? Because I think you vomit like yeah. half a gallon of water out. Yeah, thinking about having a coffee and sushi again. I was so happy. I was so happy. And why do you think it was that? Because I love food. And like, and not only that, like how sad, you know, like, I just felt so sad realizing I was never going to have a coffee in the morning again. Like, literally, I went to the black, which I don't know if it's the other side. So I had my whole... 10 minutes of saying goodbye to the world, you know, and I'm pretty sure that coffee and sushi made a big impact in that time because when I woke up, that's the first thing I was excited to realize I was gonna enjoy again. Looking back, what were the safety precautions that you should have taken that you didn't? Oh my God, radio. Radio communication failed. Second rescue, jet ski failed. Um, 
the life jackets we use nowadays that have a inflatable and it wasn't available for, for most surfers at the time. Had you had that, what's the likelihood? Nothing would have happened. Never would have happened? No. Her former tow partner, Carlos, uh, your thoughts on him? My thoughts on Carlos? Um, <laughs> I don't really think much of him. Her accident, um, the kind of risk that they took, um, all the communication after, um, I don't know, it's not my style. If you're partnering with somebody, you have to be committed to doing the best you can for that person. Uh, and from what I've seen, I, I, I didn't see that. There's a wild side to Brazilians too. There's a, a pressure that we need to prove ourselves to be worthy of anything. And, and so I also see a little bit of a lack of understanding from Sebastian with the difference of culture. But yes, you know, I think ultimately, of course, that's a statement that I agree with. I don't know if for Carlos is so black and white like that. I don't think he thinks he was wrong at all. I don't think he thinks we made mistakes. And then after you, you almost die and you're at the hospital, he goes out and keep surfing. Yeah. That had to sting. Not at the time. I was so caught in the relationship. He was so above what I could criticize that at the time, him going out felt natural. Like I, I supported him. I, I wouldn't right now, but you know, that's how important he was to me. You had said uh, afterwards, I don't regret it, not even a little bit. It was the most enriching experience in my life. Um, I don't regret it. I don't like to regret things, um, not even mistakes. And I find that the difficult, hard, painful, surprising, things that happen to us in life are the ones that make us grow the most and, and change us the most. And it was definitely an experience that has and continued to like shape my life. So uh, yesterday when we were, you know, down on the water, we swam up to the beach, which is, you know, the beach where you were resuscitated. Uh -huh. um, have you been there a lot before, like since then? Oh yeah, all the time. Uh, you did, know, that's my beach. Yeah. Is it weird at no, all? No, I don't think about it anymore. And I have a lot of great, amazing, hard, um, nerve-wracking, happy, sad experiences since then on the same place. From when you were injured to when you came back, it was how long? Four years. What did the recovery process entail? It was horrible. <laughs> I. Um, I started with the idea that I had a broken leg. So that was two months and a half recovery and that I had somewhat of like a trauma to deal with. And six months later, I figured that, you know, I had aggravated a lot, a spine injury that I had, which was a, a herniated disc. And I decided to then going to surgery on my first surgery for my spine. And it was a failed surgery. 
two months later, I had an emergency second surgery. It was a failed surgery. And I understand at that point, after your second surgery, the doctors told you you should retire. A year and a half after the second surgery, yes. Before I convinced one doctor to go into my third surgery, yes. And it was hard to find yeah. a doctor to, <laughs> yeah. find, to perform your third surgery. Yeah, I was the eighth. <laughs> seven doctors had seven different opinions and they all wanted to go different directions. And I was pretty convinced that I needed a fusion. So I, it took some time for them to realize that, you know, I was 26, I was young for a fusion, but I needed one. It's very painful and it's, there's no surgeries after that. If you do that and you fail, there's nowhere to go. It was really scary. Um, and, but I think for her, it was a relief. Really? Yeah, I think it was, at least the way I see it is she got to like the pinnacle of how much pain, how much, like how far away you can be taken from your dream. Because if you look at it from that moment on, her career really came to, to an upstart um, that led to two world records. Uh, Carlos. Why are you guys not on good terms? Um, just the way that it finished was, was very hard for me. I was between the second and third surgery on that year and a half that I was just trying to survive. And I needed a lot of emotional support. I was very scared. I was very traumatized. And I was in pain like never before. And he looks at me and he's like, you don't need to do this anymore. And I was so naive and I was so confused at the time that I agreed. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you're right. This is so stressful. Like he was retiring me, <laughs> you know? And I was agreeing because like, here's like my mentor, 10 years. And yes, this is miserable. I can barely walk. And he's making me miserable too because he's walking out on me. He told her that her career was over as well. Mm -hmm. And long list of people. Huh? Um, yeah, well, telling somebody your career is over, unless you're a doctor, that's a shitty move. Huh? You don't tell nobody that your career is over. I would imagine that made it all the more satisfying when you come back to Nazare and surf for the first time and not only surf for the first time, but do what? Yeah, uh, achieve a world record. Today, if you tell me my story, I'm like, what? <laughs> How did it go like that? You right. know, like, what a crazy story. <laughs> the way people treated me back then was like, you had a great career, you know, it's all good. You know, like, there was no talks about what is gonna do next, you know? It was like, nobody wanted to go there, nobody. Nobody wanted to talk about that. Nobody believed in it. How did it feel to prove the doubters wrong? I don't know. It was more for me than than for anyone else. At times, I was just so out of faith, you know, of really recovering, of really finding the strength to pursue the career again and risk myself again and um, accept the risk of dying. You know, it was so, so amazing to be able to um, find success after such a long, uncertain, and really kind of difficult, dark times. What led to the 2017 diagnosis with anxiety disorder? I had episodes before, weird sensations. A lot of them were vomiting. 
and I would get hospitalized and I would be fine. Even when I was little with asthma, when my asthma got really bad, oftentimes I wasn't even taken to the hospital to stay because of only my asthma, but it was because I couldn't stop vomiting. And I would get so weak that they would decide to put me on IV for food. Mm -hmm. So I always had that kind of reaction that nobody really could call what it was. And I'm a little upset I, did, I wasn't diagnosed for a long time. Like, I feel like I failed myself in a way for that. I had a lot of therapy. I always had doctors around me and nobody ever really raised the flag. And so it was never diagnosed. And then in 2017, March of 2017, I had a training camp uh, in Rio with Seb and our trainer and I peaked. It was like, wow, Maya is back. And it was like really incredible, but it was really hard on my body too. And there was something about my mental health there that I wasn't quite figuring out. I had in that same month, a really big swell here in, in the beginning of March and I couldn't surf because I had such extreme nightmares. Me and Seb were still together and the bed was wet in the morning and I had to call it off. I started getting sick, normal sick, like immune system. Okay, I'm like, I have a cold or something. And I used to get paranoid about getting sick. Maybe all the athletes are like that, but what athlete wants to peak and then get sick for 10 days? So I started probably mentally just killing myself and I'll never forget Sunday, I'm sick, huh? I have a cold, my mom comes in, we're supposed to go see a movie. She looks at me and she's like, what? Like, you're not gonna go to the movies. You do not look good. And I was like, no, 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 I wanna go see the movie, I wanna go see the movie. So we go see the movie. Three minutes in, I sprint out of that cinema into the toilet and I start throwing up. And mom is like, let's go to the hospital, let's go to the So we go, they put me on IV, and I don't get better. And at some point, my mom is so desperate that I remember her saying, just make her sleep. Just like shut this girl down. And they did that with anxiety medicine through the vein. So I slept and next day I woke up. You're fine, you can go home. So what did I have? We don't know. I'm like, okay, let's go home mom. And we go home and that week I start going back to training. I'm back to training and I cannot train right. Like I was so dizzy, I was so confused in my head. And so I started looking for doctors and answers. And at some point I'm home and my auntie comes and we start watching a, kind of like a suspense movie. And I start feeling so, so weird and ill and agitated and, uh, with anxiety. And I'm like, turn off the TV. And she's like, well, I have something here. Do you want to try? I was like, well, what do you have? Well, try. And I tried and I felt better. And I was like, what is this medicine for? And they're like, anxiety. And I'm like, mm, okay. And so I went into the psychiatrist and I told him and explained it to him. And that's when I got diagnosed and we started finding medicine that would rebalance those um, chemics that probably got mixed up in my brain. I think the anxiety just shows um, makes her maybe stay w with herself a lot. She won't go and 
large crowds. She, she won't go out partying. She won't go to, to restaurants. Like it really doesn't show in when it counts. If there's big waves or she has a job to do it, she, when she should have the most anxiety, she kind of deals with it. Now she has the dogs who help a lot. Couple uh, items I want you to elaborate on. The, the big yawns that you'll do. <laughs> Horrible. <laughs> They're the weirdest thing ever. It's like something is inside me and I just have to yawn so hard. Who told you that, Steph? Poor uh -huh. <laughs> The whole week of my first world record, I was just yawning. <laughs> she said it has something to do with oxygen. Yeah, it's like when you, when you have anxiety and you have like this pressure, what do you want to do? You want to like excel. And so I had those two things, like, you'd often see me doing this, you know, or you'd see me a lot. Like, I don't know, I just got something out of me. Yeah. It was inside, it was, um, I don't have it anymore, thank God. Oh, that's anxiety? All right, well then, <laughs> yeah, there's a, a lot of big yawns. If that's the way she deals with it, I, I didn't know that. But then, yeah, she has anxiety in the water as well. What about driving on the wrong side of the road? Yeah, that was one time. That was terrible. Well, then, you know, I had some episodes of just a very quick, and just a few times, really, very quick memory loss. Very, very sharp, like, doom, and I would be lost. I had just surfed, and I got on the road, and I could not figure out on what side to drive. So a car came, <laughs> and and all those things kind of scared me. And that's why I remember them so well. Your mom says you're still not fully recovered to this day yeah. from the anxiety. Like, how will it come out in you now? To be honest, it's pretty controlled. I had some problems uh, when I tried to really stop the medicine. Mm -hmm. And that's when, um, then I have this very similar symptoms. I think for my mom and my dad is really important for me to get off the medicine. For me, it's not a deal breaker. Mm -hmm. You know, if I need it for life, I take a very low dose. I keep myself on a very low dose and I talk to doctors about it and they tend to say that a lot of people stay on it forever. So I don't, I don't want to make it a deal breaker for me. You and Maya, with your goals together as you look into next season. I don't know. I think, I'm not sure how, how uh, committed she is on pushing her, her, uh, her limits, her level. I think she wants to chill more. She should, yeah, she should, uh, she should enjoy the time that she has now, being healthy. She's proved it all. Um, I don't know, if I was her, it would be kind of like a, a check on pushing and just switching to enjoying, which could lead to even better performance. I feel like right now I don't have like one thing that I'm um, working towards. Um, Biggest wave ever surfed? Yeah, exactly. I'm not working towards that. No? <laughs> no, not, not, no, not really. What do you think that means for your guys' partnership? Um, I think our partnership will continue in a sense that we will always surf together and, and uh, be out there together. As far as partnering up and, and having similar goals, I think my goals are a little bit different. You think probably less likely that you guys will be toe yeah. partners? 
moving forward. Yeah, my goals are uh, very ambitious, so I have to find <laughs> very ambitious partner as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not sure yet who that will be. Well, so she said that she believes you were the person that will take the the sport to the next level, that will, you know, really make the the jump in a significant way. I've surfed the biggest of the biggest waves consistently for the last decade. Um, and I think what limits us the most is equipment. Um, it's the lack of technology in our sport. There are bigger waves to surf. Uh, and I think that's my next chapter is to, to really surf the biggest of the biggest waves. The forecasts that we have are sometimes twice the size of, of, uh, of what we're surfing. Really? I don't know if that translates into waves twice the size, but I'm sure there's waves bigger than, than what we're surfing, much bigger. But so in, in US you know, metrics, instead of a 75 foot wave, it could be 100 plus feet. Yeah, and not just surfing it, not just like riding down the wave, but performing on it. That's, I think, the, that's my ambition. I think we have seen waves of that potential here, but we just haven't ridden it yet. I'm not sure if I'm the person to ride it. I'm happy to help Seb ride it. And if I just end up being lucky and I get something too, then that's great. But I like to be involved in the process. I don't know if I'm going to be the one to let go of the rope and, and uh, go down that wave. And Why not? I wouldn't risk my life for it. You know, I'd rather live another day. There's a lot of, a lot of moving parts to consider and uh, some take a lot of effort. And obviously having, having the team that's motivated to do that, which is very, very few people in the world that actually want to go out and, and, and put themselves there. Right. Um, and technology, like right now the jet skis are not capable to handle the whitewater, for example. So if you fall, you're not going to get rescued. Um, the rescue system, we don't have any sensor-triggered airbags, so you have to pull your cords. Um, and those vests, yeah, sometimes they stay on, sometimes if there's enough force, they, they could come off. So that's all things that need to be uh, done 100% before. That's the reason we haven't surfed those waves yet. Yeah. To get into the wave, have a board that's fast enough, have a jet ski or some towing device that's fast enough. Will it be a jet ski? I don't know. Do you think that could all be figured out in time for next season? That's what I'm thinking, yeah. Well, maybe not done for next season, but established within the next season. So I want to ask you a little bit about uh, your current uh, tow partner, Sebastian. How do you make it work where you go from being romantically involved with somebody to then being able to have a successful professional partnership together? Yeah. I think like all partners, you know, when you end up a romantic relationship, you separate and you take time apart to either uh, get involved with somebody else or to heal from that relationship. And we took that time, worked apart, and then with maturing and um, getting over our feelings and being in a, in a place to be friends only, that's when we started working together. And it's not like we have a gigantic field to choose from. <laughs> you know, we, we live in a small town. It's a small sport. 
Um, of course, we got along in the first place because we were a couple. So if we can still get along and still have that friendship that was there in the beginning, then why not, you know, and we're two capable athletes and we kind of have a lot of the same goals. And I think that's the bond that couldn't be broken, even though the romance was over. How do you make that transition and how do you make it work well? That's a good question. <laughs> I never thought it would work. Um, but same as like, I would have never thought breaking world records with her, I would have never thought competing with her. So uh, that's just one more I would have never thought that would work, but somehow it just worked. So how's dating in Nazare? Oh, there's no dating in Nazare. <laughs> With COVID, it's been pretty complicated. I can't wait to get a plane out of here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because it's what, a town of 10,000, yeah. and the majority of people are oh, over yeah. 80 years old? Yeah, yeah, there's not a lot of buzz in town. And uh, it's a very quiet town. That was one of the things too for us, you know, it was great for the time we were together because we were new in town. We didn't have families. We were fully dedicated for our sport. I mean, we were the company for each other. And then when we separated, we were like, where, where is my support? If my car breaks, what am right. I gonna do? If no, no, no. And we kept being that person to each other. Like, Maya, do you have food? F the supermarket closed, you know? So. We were always helpful with each other because we needed that. We didn't have family here. So how lonely does that make kind of the existence when, you know, you're here and all in pursuing your sport? It's lonely, but I think anyone that has like a strong calling might feel at times lonely because you know, when we start looking a lot inside and we start discovering ourselves a lot, it tends to take you away from groups. You stop really defining your path a little bit more in a singular way. I feel alone often, but I, I don't feel lonely so much. Um, there is a lack of people in my everyday life, but the connections I have they're strong and I try to be open to all the encounters I have in this small town. I'm probably not gonna have a best friend that was born and raised in Nazareth, but I'm gonna have the interaction that keeps me healthy and satisfied as a human connection with all kinds of people. And that's gonna be sufficient for me to be happy. Although maybe there's not a boyfriend here for me, there is 10 to 20,000 people here, <laughs> you know, and they're great people. <laughs> and, and therefore it's about, you know, making an effort and, and choosing not to be completely isolated. 10 years from now, oh, where do you no want to be? <laughs> I have no idea. Am I going to be in this garden? <laughs> I hope not. What makes you happy? Nature. My dogs, my family, surf makes me happy. Um, yeah, being at home makes me happy. Traveling makes me happy. A lot of things can make me happy. Thank you very much. Thank you. There's nothing else I can add to this interview. <laughs> you know everything. Anything I didn't ask that we should have covered? Cough. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I think that'll definitely make the show. Yeah. <laughs> For a tour of Gabera's tranquil home in Nazare, and to watch Maya and her tow partner Seb take me out on the water and show me how they rescue one another with a jet ski before a big wave's coming, go to youtube.com slash Graham Bensinger. And if you enjoyed this one, leave us a rating and review. Consider sending this podcast link to a friend. Your support here would mean a lot. Thanks again for listening.